Hello, my name is Bob Bamber and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. We're going back in the time machine to August of 1995 for what is essentially volume four of this month's show, although it's going to be released first because this is how I do it. Um, we are, this is a special edition of the show. Uh, this is going to be covering, uh, the New Japan sort of WCW, uh, collision in Korea show. Uh, we'll, I will explain some of the context, uh, to that in a minute. Um, but it, as I say, it's a special show in the sense that there's no news, there's no, uh, TV reviews, there's no audio clips or anything like that. It's, it, we're kind of uncut, but I do have guests firstly introducing from the new generation podcast, project podcast. Sorry. Stuart Brooks. Stuart, hello. Hello, Bob. How are you? I'm good. I'm very well. And Chris White. Hi, Bob. How you doing? Good. I'm good. Yeah. I say no. No news to speak of, um, but we are reviewing this show. This show actually was taped in April of of, of, uh, of 1995 uh, across two nights in uh, Pyongyang in, in North Korea, and we're going to come to, uh, in the second half of the show, we're going to come to some of the, the fascinating stories that came out of this trip. Um, but essentially this was uh, a trip kind of set up by the, the North Korean government almost uh, as a big event and um, in combination really with New Japan Pro Wrestling, um, WCW kind of jumped on the back of this. I mean, admittedly, Flair is in is in the main event of the second night, um, and um, but otherwise, and there are some other names you're going to notice that you will recognise either from our ECW shows or formerly guys of WCW, but the likes of Benoit, Two Cold Scorpio, uh, the Steiner brothers are not guys that are mentioned as ex-WCW guys. In fact, one of the stories during the Steiner's match is how Eric Bischoff was essentially saying that the Steiner's aren't good enough for, for WCW. Quite convenient given that the Steiner's have just negotiated with WCW and told them no. Um, so that that time up quite, lines up quite nicely as well. Um, so yeah, but obviously, uh, we have this. This show was in Pyongyang in a giant. I think it's called the May Day Stadium or something like that. Um, and the first night was in front of 150,000 people. The second night in front of 190,000 people. Today and beyond, um, the biggest wrestling crowd ever. That's probably never going to be broken. Um, but it is worth saying that as we are in North Korea, um, these people weren't really there because they wanted to be there. I, I won't particularly go any further than that, certainly at this stage in the game. Um, but we're going to start as they will start with the show review and then we will kind of come to a lot of the context at the end of it. Um, but firstly, Stuart, you can uh, kick us off with the results. In the opener, Wild Pegasus Chris Benoit defeated Two Cold Scorpio. Yuji Nagata defeated Tokimitsu Ishizawa. Masahiro Chono and Hiro Saito defeated El Samurai and Tadao Yasuda. Bull Nakano and Akira Hokuto defeated Manami Toyota and Mariko Yoshida. Shinya Hashimoto fought Scott Norton to a time limit draw. Road Warrior Hawk defeated Tadao Yasuda. The Steiner Brothers defeated Hiroshi Hase and Kensuke Sasaki. And Antonio Inoki defeated Ric Flair. Yeah, and it is worth saying quickly for context that, that this wasn't the totality of the matches across, across both nights. Uh, you'll notice, I think it's Yasada who appears twice. Uh, that was from, from shows on different days. Um, and there were other matches that, that, that were featured that obviously didn't appear in this uh, two-hour edit of the show that WCW uh, put on pay-per-view. Chris, what do you think of this show? Um, it was it was okay. Uh, I, it was actually probably a bit better than I thought. I, I saw the other day uh, you tweeted out, the, the worst five shows you'd reviewed on on this podcast, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be a guest for two of them. So, judging by sort of my record, this was pretty good. Better than average. Better than average. Stuart, what do you think? Um, 
it, it's interesting to watch from the context of it's a show held in North Korea, which just feels quite surreal. But given, like you say, the audience's perhaps lack of willingness to be there and possibly lack of understanding of what is actually going on and the fact that you can't see the majority of the stadium, it had quite an eerie feel. Um, and a lot of the matches played in front of silence. So that so that was kind of weird. But some of the stuff on the show was decent, some wasn't. Yeah, um, I think the edit that made the American pay-per-view airing was one that was overdubbed with the with the kind of commentary from from Mike Tanay and Eric Bischoff, and we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. Um, but in terms of not that the crowd were loud, in fact, there was I think other than the main event where there was you know comparatively a ton of noise, but actually not very much. Um, other than that, the crowd were largely just in silence, and and, and shoot, you kind of cover the reasons why. Um, but I don't think the audio edit of what we got was particularly a fair representation of what actually happened. But no, shoot, you're right. It, this this for, for all the bravado about how many people this was in front of, it, it wasn't ever. If you watch this without any context, I think for one, you would think it was probably in Japan and not in in North Korea. But that might just be because you know you, you weren't looking, giving it paying that much attention. Um, but also, sure, this wasn't a show that looked like it was in front of two hundred thousand people. No, it didn't ever feel like a show that was being held in front of that many people. You didn't really get a sense of the scale of a crowd that was 150 or 190,000 people. I mean, imagine what that must look like as an audience. The only sense you got of it was in the clips between the matches where they showed you clips of what they were calling the Peace Festival, and it was sort of dancing and displays and stuff like that. But during the actual wrestling itself, you got no sense of the scale of this event. No, it was very dark. I mean, I think the only thing you could perhaps say was that you know from like watching you know wrestling shows ordinarily, you can tell you can tell how many rows deep the floor section is, and this there looked like a ton of floor section fans. It just kept going and going and going. Um, so there was that, but yeah, it wasn't. You, you could tell this wasn't a show that was necessarily produced by WCW in the sense that I think they would have made a lot more out of it rather than just saying the number. Um, but equally, you know, the as I say, as I said earlier on, the idea that this is a WCW show, uh, we'll, we'll come to it later on. But it's it's not really. It, it's a New Japan show in North Korea, headlined by a WCW wrestler. That's that's really what it is. But we'll uh, we'll come to that as we get to it. Anyway, we start, and Eric Bischoff is joined by Mike Tanay and Kazuo Ishikawa. Uh, this is the uh, commentary team. This is, I think, was filmed in front of a, a green screen, really. Uh, Bischoff, for what it's worth, was on this tour, but none of the stuff that actually features in this video was anything that Bischoff was directly involved in. Um, Bischoff remarks that the Korean crowd will likely be like Japanese fans and they won't have seen action like this. Yes, Eric, no shit on that one, they won't have. Uh, and we start the show with uh, Chris Benoit as well, while Pegasus Chris Benoit against Two Gold Scorpio. They come running out from the back and they are given flowers on their way to the ring. Uh, neither today or Bischoff mentioned either man's prior history in WCW. Both are billed as New Japan stars and this is something other than with Bro Warrior Hawk, who, as we know, is, is currently on WCW's active roster um all of the names you'll recognize here aren't really featured as as ex wcw guys um we start with some exchange of arm locks more chain wrestling as scorpio goes from monkey flip but benoit sits out into a trio of pin attempts scorpio flips up to the top rope then hits a moonsault followed by a super kick the crowd are motionless scorpio goes for a splash from the top but benoit moves 
Scorpio recovers, hits another super kick, then goes for a tombstone, but Benoit flips out of it into one of his own. Benoit goes to the top, hits the diving headbutt, and picks up the victory. Chris? Uh, it was a decent opener, but for me, the uh, sort of the way they felt, they, the match started out with both men feeling out of the crowd a little bit, and that's probably to do with the huge number in attendance. And it because of the amount of time it was given, it was only about six minutes long. It felt more like an exhibition, I guess, of like wrestling, like to these, like to the fans, like as you say, who won't have seen anything like this before. So it felt, it, it felt, it feels almost harsh to judge it alongside sort of other wrestling that we might see and, and watch as fans because it felt almost like a sort of introduction to this particular style of wrestling for the crowd. Sure. Yes, I agree completely with Chris there. It didn't really fully show what either man is capable of, but like Chris says, provided a pretty good introduction to this is what these guys can do. Like you say as well, it must have been so difficult to wrestle in front of a crowd that big that's making zero noise whatsoever. Uh, neither man was playing particularly face or particularly heel, I thought. But yeah, as a demo of this is Two Cold Scorpio and this is Chris Benoit, I thought it worked pretty well. No, I mean, this, uh, I think Chris alluded to it, but I mean, this is a, a real bizarre set of circumstances in the sense that because of the crowd, you, you can, to a point, like they're either not going to be impressed by anything or they're going to be impressed by whatever you do. So I don't necessarily think you have to even try all that hard. You can, like, we'll get to the main event later on. I, you know, it, it looked like every Ric Flair match I'd ever seen, but it's like, well, it doesn't need to do any more. But they're either going to go home and be wowed by it or they're going to go home and just not think anything of it. And so the fact that this was probably by any standard, and I don't really think we've seen Benoit and Two Cold Scorpio and ECW this year, but by any standard, I would expect these two to have a far better match in ECW than they did here. I don't really think it particularly mattered, you know. They they got the they got their big spots in. It was a smooth match. It was only six minutes. It wasn't going to be any longer. It didn't particularly need to be much longer than that. Um, but yeah, I, I think Chris is right. If we're gonna if we're gonna line this up against uh, a, a, a clash of the champions, say that we're reviewing at the end of the month for WCW, um, this wasn't particularly you know anything to write home about. But it was fine. Um, I, I think this this would have this would have sat fine on Clash of the Champions and and uh, dare I say it, having seen the card I get the sense it would have been one of the better matches. And um, we move on to Yuji Nagata versus Tokamitsu Ishizawa. Well, Stuart, f- f- credit for you for your uh, your readout earlier on. That was uh, ve- very smooth. I'll give you that. Uh, anyway, we uh, we move on. Uh, Ishizawa hits the spine buster, but Nagata rolls through into a leg lock. Nagata gets an arm lock and then works over the arm. Nagata takes things down to the mat, but Ishizawa is able to fight out into a guard position. He's finally able to work from unlocking a sleeper, but Nagata works Ishizawa's leg at the same time. Ishizawa gets up and hits some uppercuts in the corner. Nagata goes for an enziguri, but misses. Ishizawa rolls through into an arm bar, but Nagata gets to the ropes. Nagata hits a series of kicks to the needing Ishizawa, then locks in a cross face, and that's enough for the win. Stuart? I was a bit like the North Korean crowd, I think, in the sen- in this one, in the sense of I found it quite hard to follow in that both competitors were dressed exactly the same. I've got really no idea who either of them are. I- I- I'm guessing they're both sort of New Japan young boys. It- and again, it was probably just an exhibition of what these guys can do, but it-, it was kind of hard to follow. It didn't last particularly long. And I think this match was the first instance of the card of Eric Bischoff's terrible calling of anything kick-related. Back leg round kick. 
Oh, it was, uh, uh, Chris, I'll, I'll come to you in a second, but I, I kind of likened Bischoff's commentary to like, almost to like, he'd been fed commentary in Spanish and this was like the Spanish to English translation of what he was being made to call. Yeah. Uh, Chris, uh, elaborate on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it was, I think it was the first match out of four on the night where he called an Enziguri a jump back leg kick or something along those lines. It's just really terrible. The, the much, this match was much the same as the first, as she alludes to. It was, it just felt more like an exhibition, but it had, worse commentary and Bischoff spent a, a large portion of it was only like a f- four or five minute match and Bischoff spent a large portion of it talking about the cultural differences between the USA and North Korea like that's one of the most obvious sentences people could ever say and I think that was pretty much a reflection of the action that was going on in the ring yeah I I, I don't think the action was bad I, I, bad. I agree with Stuart that it, it wasn't the easiest match to follow both guys are a similar build both got black hair both look fairly similar both wearing black trunks and black uh, black knee pads and black boots so yeah it, it wasn't the easiest match to follow I actually thought the action much like most of this so I actually don't think the action was all that bad it was kind of just everything that went on around it kind of brought it down a peg or two um, but yeah Stuart let, let's deal with this commentary now I get the feeling we'll be, we'll be coming in and out of it at various points during the show but uh, you know we, we've got Bischoff just c- calling moves with just words like not not knowing what any of them are um, and we yeah not that it's the easiest thing in the world to be able to tape what presumably would have been a few weeks later in a studio somewhere in America um, the audio um, for, for this show um, but they just sounded so bored oh oh absolutely like you say, there's definitely a difficulty there in that if you are commentating on a weekly television show or a Clash of the Champions or a pay-per-view, you have storylines to hype, events to promote, characters to get over, whereas with this, you don't have any of that. So you get in the sense that they were just speaking for the sake of filling time. And, and Mike today is a great resource. Obviously, he's the guy who knows a lot about these performers, same as he was back at When Worlds Collide. But... I'm not sure what Kazu Ishikawa brought to the commentary team. He was very difficult to hear as well. He was very low down in the mix. And, and yeah, Bischoff just seemed to be speaking words for the sake of speaking words. Yeah, I mean, Stuart, you, 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 will, have, uh, you will have done King of the Ring 94 in your own show like we did ours. I mean, that... I don't want to compare it to Art Donovan, but this this is like this is one of the commentary performances. I, I'm the kind of fan that generally just drowns out wrestling commentary, but this this really stood out to me in a different way to that. But this one really stood out to me as like, wow, this is bad. Oh, oh, absolutely! Like you say, they they would have been hard pressed to sound less interested if they tried. And yeah, as you say about Mike Tanay, um, you, you go back to the, the, the commentary on the AAA when, when Worlds Collide show back in November between him and, uh, Chris Cruz. And I remember one of the takeaways from that was just how good they both were in terms of getting over a lot of things about, you know, AAA and, you know, Benoit and, and, and Scorpio were on that show, like they're on this, um, and getting a lot of things about, you know, how res- Mexican wrestling works and all of that. And yeah, I mean, it, yeah, d- difficult. My, my brain doesn't largely lie with Tanae, but I, I think part of it... And th- one of the criticisms, Chris, I guess, is that they weren't animated enough, but it's a something to be said, but it's very difficult to be animated when there's not a ton happening. Yeah, the, the, like I do have sympathy with them from that perspective, because it's like as hard as it is for them to like commentate on the match, in terms of us uh, 
talking, trying to review the match. It's also hard because there's not a whole lot of action in the first two matches, like of of real note. But I think sort of if, yeah, like Stuart said, if it's a weekly TV show, then you have like storylines to enhance and things like that. They should they should have just gone and fo- like the backup plan. Like there's no storyline here, so you just call the moves and just sort of do it accurately. I don't think that would have been too much to ask. Just call call the moves correctly and just that's how you commentate on the match like rather than talking a whole load of waffle for the sake of it Stuart what's more annoying Eric Bischoff just calling a series of positions and body parts or Vincent Mann going what a manoeuvre I'll take Bischoff any day absolutely any day although one further qualm about the commentary on this event was they seem to have not decided what tense they wanted to call the event in so at some points they acknowledged that this was taped a while back and they were in a studio somewhere and then later on Bischoff asks Ishikawa who he thinks is going to win in the main event yeah no you're right I mean they they were certainly talking about you know Flair as the post-April Flair i.e. you know because one point I'm jumping ahead of myself but one point they mentioned you know Flair's ring rust because it was in April i.e. at that stage in time he hadn't wrestled in six months which in storyline is is as true to it as in real life but yeah you're right that there was a problem of you know they're, they're, they're four months back in the past three four months back in the past and they didn't know quite how to handle it and at times they were like very respectful for their audience, but yeah, you're right. That, that did kind of slip through net at times. But again, that that cannot be, that cannot be easy. It can't be easy just to jump back in time and be able to talk like that um, when you're trying to tape a show and worry about learning what moves are. Um, but yeah, I, I, I t- back to the original question. I'd certainly take Bischoff trying over Vincent Mann, just calling everything what a maneuver and more annoyingly going one, two, three, and he's got him every time, despite the fact. Pin hasn't gone through, but anyway, that's a that's All a rant for, story. Yes, yes, a rant for another day. Uh, we move on to Masahiro Chono and Hiro Saito versus El Samurai and Tadao Yasuda. All four men close in the ring as referee checks them for weapons. Uh, Chono and Yasuda collide mid-ring and square off. They then do the same again. Saito tags into the ring, works over Yasuda. Yasuda hits a body slam on Saito, then tags in El Samurai. Chono comes off the rope and hits a lovely big boot on El Samurai, then fires Samurai off the far rope, but Samurai floats over into a lovely sunset flip. Yasuda tags him in and hits a similarly big boot on Chono. Saito hits a senton splash for a two count. El Samurai fires Saito off the far rope, but Saito stops in the move and Samurai's drop kick meets thin air. Saito then hits a spine buster of sorts while tagging in Chono, who locks in a modified camel clutch. Yasuda hits another big boot and starts working over Chono with these comical sumo type slaps. He tags in El Samurai who hits a flying headbutt but cannot get the three count. Saito whips Samurai into Chono who nails him with a big boot. Chono goes to the top row and hits a flying shoulder tackle which is enough to keep El Samurai down for the three count. Chris? Yeah it was a uh, decent if unspectacular tag team match. I think it's like a trend for this show. None of it's going to be particularly stellar because of the sort of lack of story and things like that. But um one uh, I know we don't want to keep talking about the commentary and but the fact that it was a uh, sort of taped after the commentary it did annoy me they they really played up uh, Yasuda's sumo background as if it was like something to be reckoned with within the ring and then his none of his moveset has any absolutely no reference to his like sumo style or anything like that he doesn't portray any of that in his gimmick or through his moves and that just it just seems stupid like if 
if maybe if the commentary was like live and at the time and like you'd been fed the line that oh you know he used to be a sumo wrestler but to to do it like at a later date that really I had an issue with that. Stuart, would you have again? Chris is right. We don't want to spend all, all night talking about the commentary. Would it have just been better if they'd have just treated it like it was live? Yeah, well, you either pick one or the other. I, I haven't really got a problem with either saying we are here live in North Korea, isn't this great? Or this show was taped a while back and we're going to take you through the evening's events. It's pick, pick a tense and stick with it, really. Yeah. Thoughts on this match? Um, it, it wasn't too bad, really. I will say with Yasuda, perhaps the reason they don't play up his, samurai, his sumo background too much is that he was actually the lowest rank in sumo, so it's not like he was a grand champion, a Yokozuna, if you will. So it, it might have been something that they didn't want to necessarily draw a lot of attention to, but just kind of wanted to reference. I, I quite liked his comedy sumo slaps as well. It was something different. Yeah, th- th- this wasn't too bad, really, as far as... Like Chris said, an unspectacular but solid tag team match. Chono has some nice kicks, both in terms of his Yakuza kick and his mule kick to, is it Samurai's groin, was particularly vicious, I thought. And I, th- I think they were the first people on the show to play heel as well, which, yeah, always gets me more interested in a match than if nobody's playing either character. No, I, I quite like this. Um, just, I mean, I think some of the, some of the big boots were, you know, ha- having, you know, having been fed a diet recently of Hulk Hogan just, you know, fanning a big boot on Vader and uh, and and Diesel similarly doing one on uh, on on Sid in a similarly kind of soft fashion. It's really nice to see some big boots laid in. Um, so that was quite good. And yeah, I mean, it was perhaps, and I think it was. A, I saw with a few of these matches tonight in the sense that I don't think they told a particularly kind of coherent or or, or well-developed story. And it's difficult when, you know, as both a viewer and just as a show, there's not a lot of context around it. Um, But I actually thought some of the individual kind of sequences were quite good. And uh, and this probably matched summed it up the best. Um, But we also started a trend throughout three or four times the entire night where Benoit got a bitch with a diving headbutt, but nobody else did. Um, and I, I can't particularly work out why, but again, the, these matches can and are out of order. Um, can be and are, sorry, I should say. Um, but yeah, the, the, the match was fine. I, I, I liked I liked enough about it to make up for the fact that it perhaps didn't always kind of stick to a massively good storyline. But no, I think certainly you know, by a long way the best match of the night so far in terms of it had a bit of time, it had a bit of story. As sure you're right, there was it was a more traditional uh wrestling tag match. Uh, we move on, we cut to a video package showing Ric Flair and Muhammad Ali standing together, enjoying themselves. Uh, if you're wondering about Muhammad Ali's involvement in this, we will get to it later in the show. Um not that he's involved in this show, but we'll get to that, his kind of involvement in the tour. Um and basically it's just a video package showing you US stars out and about in North Korea. And we move on to the women's tag match. Uh, sure, before I get to this, I, I, I know thanks to kind of your early uh, viewings of Bull Meccano last year on your show, um, you've kind of gone away and, uh, and, and kind of sought out a, a lot of kind of Japanese women's wrestling. Um, it, it, in as much or as little detail as you can, just kind of give us some, some context to, it, to, to that, that kind of looking at it and anything you can shine on, on this match before we review it. Uh, this functions kind of similarly to the Wild Pegasus Two Cold Scorpio match in that this is a pretty good introduction to what Japanese Joshi is, is like. It's, it's very fast paced, it's very intense. There's perhaps somewhat of a lack of selling in places, but you get a ton of high spots and 
the athleticism of a lot of these women, even someone, you know, the size of Bull Nakano is really quite incredible. Manami Toyota, she doesn't go on to win Wrestler of the Year in 1995, I'll be shocked. Um, there's a match taped, I believe, about two weeks after this with her and Kyoko Inui that goes an hour-long draw that is just phenomenal. And I cannot imagine any two other performers going at the pace they go for an entire hour. She, she's fantastic, as is Akira Hokuto and as is Paul Nakano. Mariko Yoshida is kind of a, a bit younger and a bit less established than the other three, but she certainly shows promise. And, Chris, I, I think one thing we'll, we'll touch on in the second half of the show is, you know, just, just some of the context around, you know, being in North Korea. Um, North Korean women, Chris, I don't think look like this. No, not at all. And uh, that probably was to the detriment of the way this match went down with the crowd on the night, uh, who were particularly flat. Uh, not that they had been otherwise previously, but considering how good this match was, uh, it, it deserved more. Yeah, and uh, as I to, to elaborate on that, yeah, all, all, yeah, we got Paul Meccano with her usual get-up with the uh, the big spiked-up blue kind of hair on her forehead. And and they all came out in these kind of brightly coloured Japanese robes. Um, they were all wearing, wearing probably, well, by any standards, but certainly for North Korea, quite revealing ring gear. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's there's, there's, there's certainly uh, certainly some context to be drawn for this match. Certainly Mike Tanay, who compared Nakano to Big Van Vader. Um, Stuart, that's interesting. Absolutely on the money. I mean, I, I would perhaps go with Arja Kong. As as more of a comparison to Vader, but in the in in the context of this match, yeah, I can see how you would draw that comparison. And we start with all four women doing some double team action. Nakano double clotheslines, then flips Toyota inside out with uh, with another clothesline. Toyota manages to flip out into a series of missile drop kicks, but Nakano kicks out at two. Nakano sets up Yoshida with a body slam and tags Ukoto in for a splash from the top. Yoshida hits a pile driver but only gets a two. I should probably mention, actually, given that we, we did this in order, it's Manami Toyota and Mariko Yoshida versus Bull Nakano and Akira Hukoto. Ukoto sets up Yoshida into a lovely surfboard stretch, then modifies it into a kneading one using Yoshida's hair for leverage. Nakano then sets up for an impressive side lock submission. Yoshida hits a crossbody block onto Hakuto into a spare, uh, pair of spring back elbows, spring wall back elbows. Then goes for a perfect plex, but only gets a two. Toyota comes off the top, but Hakuto gets the legs up. And Nakano then hits Toyota with a vicious powerbomb for a two. Toyota then gets a pin attempt. Nakano hits a double suplex. The action spills to the outside. Toyota hits a springboard splash to her opponents on the outside. Then back in the ring hits a moonsault on Hukoto, but can only get a two count. So Toyota then picks up Ukoto on her shoulders, but rolls through into a victory roll, but only gets a two. Yoshida hits a crossbody from the top, then hits a series of drop kicks on Nakano. Ukoto hits a drop, double drop kick from the top, then hits a rolling clothesline to the outside. Back in the ring, Nakano hits a leg drop from the top and pins Yoshida for the three count. Stuart? The best thing on the show by a country mile. But, like I say, it, it, this really is an eight-minute intro to what these women can do over a longer period of time. It, it, absolutely, if, if you've got access to watching this show, I'm not sure if it's still available to order on pay-per-view, go and watch it. Chris? Yeah, well, I, I definitely agree. It was easily the best thing on the show. Um, I'm much the opposite of Stuart. This is, this is my first uh, 
ever, first time I've ever watched Japanese women's wrestling. Um, I was unaware, like, like as naive as this sounds, of pretty much all four of these women. Uh, never seen any of them wrestle before. So if this was the introduction, sign me up for some more because this was this was excellent. This is exactly my kind of match. Yeah, it, it was very good. I mean, um, Chris, you'd have been following kind of mid ninety four or so. In, in, in certain points in 94, Bull Nakano does pop up in uh, a few WWF matches against Alundra Blaze. But other than that, this is this is nothing we've touched on in our timeline. Um, but yeah, the action was fast paced. I think almost to a fault at, at times. Yeah, we're, we're getting into the point where you, know, you, you start hitting so many moves. It's like, well, don't any of them hurt? You know, there, there, there are some. You know, I think you, you get to the point where the, the leg drop from the top, which you know, admittedly was pretty good, you know, and, ends the match. It's like, well. The power bomb looked almost as dangerous, and that didn't do it. But no, I think in terms of the time they were given and what they set out to do, um, this was 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 an excellent kind of six seven minute match that I think would have got a lot more plaudits in front of an audience that was there to respect it. But um, yeah, Stuart, anything more to say? Uh, I presume you could go on for quite a long time, but you know, anything else? Um. Yeah, I, I just advise if you can get hold via tape traders of any of these sorts of matches, then and, and you enjoyed this, then it's definitely worth delving further into it. Bull Nakano definitely did that for me after seeing her in sort of late '94. It really opened a gateway to a lot of these other performers. And yeah, I, I agree with your point, Bob. In that there does come a point in some matches where you think, "Are you not done yet?" But you know, they're, they're so good at everything they do and, and the training these women go through to even just compete in a match would, would boggle your mind. So you kind of let them get away with it. Sure. And any, any recommendations for other stuff that, that, that will have come, you know, maybe after this point, you know, we're in August. Um, but any recommendations for any matches that people should kind of seek out if they can get hold of that, that, that might enable them to further explore this kind of format and, and women's wrestling in Japan? Um, like I say, there's the Manami Toyota versus Kyoko Inui WWWA title match from a couple of weeks after this, which is fantastic. Like I say, an hour-long draw, and it, it it's incredible how much they managed to do in an hour. The cardio they must have to do that is incredible. Similarly, there's another match from, I believe, July 93 that's dubbed the Thunder Queen match, which is a four-on-four women's match, which goes for an hour again opens with four five-minute singles matches and then goes into an eight-woman tag that's absolutely incredible. Um, Manami Toyota, Toshio Yamada, hair versus hair from 92, I think it is. It is particularly excellent. They they were tag team partners, uh, but end up having this hair versus hair match that, that, that's just fantastic. Um, and lastly, if, you, if you're looking for sort of big shows, there's three. Dream Slam 1 and Dream Slam 2. Big Egg Wrestling Universe, which you might remember, Bob, from Survivor Series 94, where Olundra Blaze takes on Bull Nakano for the WWF Women's title, where Nakano picks the belt up. It's an incredibly long event, but there, there are some cracking matches on that. There's one, one final match I'll recommend, actually, as well, is that Toyota and Yamada versus Dynamite Kansai and Mayumi Ozaki from late 1992. It's a two out of three falls tag team match that is just an absolute belter. And we move on to the IWGP Heavyweight Championship match. It's Shinja Hashimoto, or Shinya Hashimoto against Scott Norton. Norton looks absolutely huge. Shoot, I've never seen Norton before, but 
boy, like this was, this was muscle strapped onto muscle, strapped onto muscle. He's big. He is an absolute tank of a human being. Yes. It's, but even by sort of, if you were to stick him in the late eighties era of Hulkamania and Hercules and the ultimate warrior, I think even then he would probably still stand out. Yeah. I, it, uh, he's got like a beer barrel of muscle on his chest. Like it, it, it kind of like it overhangs, but it doesn't move. It's like it's just mental. But anyway, uh, Norton runs over to Hashimoto with a shoulder tackle. Norton charges him in the corner. Hashimoto recovers and hits a spinning wheel kick, then locks in an arm. Like, God knows what Bischoff must have called that spinning wheel kick. Who knows? Uh, Norton recovers and hits another shoulder tackle. Hashimoto goes back to working the arm, then hits kicks Norton across the chest, but Norton tells him to keep on bringing it. Norton takes control with a series of standing elbow drops, then takes the second rope and hits a Vader bomb for a two count. Norton is in complete control as he locks in a sleeper. Hashimoto manages to get some parity by kicking the back of Orton's knee. Hits a nice DDT but only gets a two. Norton hits a DDT and an announcement goes over over the PA, presumably about the time limit warning. Norton fights and hits a suplex. Hashimoto throws some desperate rights, then hits a sidekick to Norton's chest. Norton hits a powerbomb, then goes to the top rope. Hits a splash, but only gets a two, and then the bell ring as the time runs out. Chris? I've never seen a 20-minute uh, match with so little of note happening in it before. It was I just found it so, so boring. And as a result, found myself being carried off more and more by Bischoff on commentary and a Saying the same old thing, but it, he was just terrible in this match. And he said, jump back, leg, round kick for Enziguri, I think five times I heard it. Yep. Uh, it this was like just terrible. It was, there was so little of note. And it, it just felt like both guys were just passing the time, waiting for the time limit, like just chin lock after chin lock. And occasionally they'd spring into action, but for very brief periods. Yeah, Stuart, if I remember this correctly, I think this this was the main event of the first night because Flair, Flair only wrestled once on the second evening. Um, and yeah, it, it, Stuart, it, it shaped for about three or four minutes that they might end up going somewhere decent and then it just never got any better. Yeah, it was overall just just pretty bland. Is is all you can really say about it. I think I think the most notable thing I took from the match was Bischoff seemed absolutely determined to make sure everybody watching this show knew he went to high school with Scott Norton. Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> like like yeah, he seemed to like the story seemed to evolve because I'm like at one point he seemed to imply they were like best friends, um and that mm. kind of thing. I don't know. Um, like, can you imagine like Scott Norton and Eric Bischoff sitting next to each other? Like, like, like they'd look similar. Um, but yeah, no, like, yeah, you're right. This, this was, this was peak Bischoff in terms of just bragging. And he had enough time. This went 20 minutes and it felt like it. But yeah, it, it was, it was the kind of match that I, I, I got about two minutes into and thought, yeah, this could actually get quite good. We've got two big guys who might wrestle a quite hard hitting style. And yeah, it just never got any better. Like, you, you've got Norton who's, you know, not that, you know, Hashimoto's small, but you've got Norton, who's the bigger guy, kind of dominating the match, but dominating in a way that not was, didn't particularly accentuate his physicality. And then it got a bit better, and they had the thing with with, with the kicks and all of that. And then you, it was like, and and the one thing 
problem I often have with time limit draws is that we just never we never got close to a finishing sequence. Sometimes you can do a time limit draw that really feels like you're crescendoing to something. Like I don't think I can sum this match up better than by saying the draw happened. They just panned out and just showed some like you know I won't say pyrotechnics, but like some kind of fireworks going off. Um, and it was like yeah, it was just an anticlimax to a match that that. I think briefly threatened to be half decent, but never got any better. Um, and I think someone summed it up quite nicely. I think it was Chris Savisa in the Pro Wrestling Torch when he said, if you'd have cut this match to 15 minutes and just trimmed the fat a little bit, it might have actually been a lot better. Um, this match suffered not necessarily because any one or two like individual sequences was bad. It was just a bit too slow and not enough happened. If you could have cut out a few of the the kind of pauses in the middle, you might have got something half decent out of this, but it, but it did suffer. Um, and we cut to footage that Stuart Rep mentioned at the start about what appears to be an opening ceremony with acrobats and gymnasts. This is the, the real time we get to see this sta- uh, the, the stadium because it, it's in the light at that point. This entire show is shot in the dark. Um, and we cut briefly to the crowd and we see two cold Scorpio and he's looking appreciative. And we move on to the second appearance of the night of Tatsuo Yasuda, this time against Road Warrior Hawk. Uh, Yasuda does some sumo hands, which doesn't impress Hawk. Hawk runs him over with a shoulder tackle. Yasuda does a sumo squat. Hawk follows and they charge at each other. Hawk loses out but recovers quickly and knocks Yasuda to his feet. Hawk hits a body slam then goes to the top and misses a splash. Yasuda hits a body slam then a butterfly suplex. It's Hawk's, Hawk no sells and bounces straight back up. He then hits a power slam then a closer off the top rope and wins. Stuart? This was probably the worst thing on the show I thought. Not bad. I, I, I thought this had more of a note in it than the match beforehand. I mean, it, it, it was short enough where I don't think it ever got bad. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's got that going for it versus versus the Norton match. But yeah, it, it, it's just Hawk being Hawk, isn't it? No selling pretty much everything except when he, you know, misses off the top rope. And two minutes, was it, at best? And it was done? Yeah. No, yeah, you, you're right. I mean, uh, I, I, I thought the, the butterfly suplex looked really nice, um, and then Hawks just popped straight back up. I was like, oh, okay, all right, whatever. Um, and that was like, okay, what way to take me out at the moment, Chris? Yeah, this it was uh, just a dud, really. Uh, it, I did prefer it to the match before. I was less bored, but it was thankfully short. Um, yeah, I, there's not much to say. I didn't enjoy it. It was what it was. Uh, and while I remember, it is worth saying that obviously, you know, they had two nights worth of shows and, you know, this, this is a selection of the matches. Uh, uh having read people who've seen both nights, uh, apparently there were better matches that we didn't see. Uh, I think Hase, uh, who features next up, wrestled Chris Benoit on the other night and there was another women's match that didn't make it to this show that was also excellent, apparently. Um, and so yeah, like that, that they put these in, I think, kind of because they felt they had to. Um, I, I, I guess, Stuart, is it somewhat fair enough, Hawk being a recognisable name, that the match had to appear, and, and maybe similarly with Norton? Is there something to be said for that? Get I, to, I, I, to an American I, audience? Yeah, I guess if you're trying to sell this pay-per-view to an American audience. I mean, from, from WCW television, this match was solely promoted on... Sorry, this pay-per-view was solely promoted on the Flair and Oki match, which is fair enough. But I guess, yeah, if, if you want to advertise a couple of more more names, you would pick probably Hawk, the Steiner brothers, and, and probably Two Cold Scorpio would be the only other one of, of mainstream audiences might recognise. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. I think, I think we go back in reverse order of when they, when they last appeared in, uh, 
in WCW. I mean, Hawks obviously there at the moment. Tuchel Scorpio was still around at the beginning of '94. Um, so when did the Steiners leave? Because I know Benoit was knocking around in '92. When, when were the Steiners last there? In the WWF. In the, in WCW. In WCW, they left in October 1992. Okay, so around the and, same time Benoit was there, I think. Yeah, and they they were in WWF by January '93. Right. Okay, that, that, that explains that one. Uh, anyway, we move on to the Steiner brothers against uh, Hi- Hiroshi Hase and Kanzuki Sasaki. Uh, Bischoff talks about the Steiners having a tough time in WCW. Stuart, this, this was peak Bischoff. This was, this was the Bischoff that I think, presumably depending on when they actually take this audio, had probably just had some unsuccessful negotiations with the Steiners about trying to get them in. Um, and this was him essentially just talking a lot of nonsense about the Steiners, you know, not being good enough for WCW. Yes, I, I believe that's exactly the case, that they tried to bring the Steiners in at this time. The Steiners had rejected the money offer and this was the end of it, so Bischoff took every opportunity he could in this match to point out how they weren't good enough for WCW's tag division. And Bob, I know you've watched plenty of WCW's tag division in 1995. I think we could both agree that the Steiner brothers would do a lot to improve that. Oh, yeah. I think me and you could compete with some of the WCW <laughs> tag team stuff. Um, but, yeah, like, like imagine trying to, like, rationally, like, in any form of sense, try and explain that Bunkhouse Buck and Dirty Dick Slater uh, are in any way close to the Steiner brothers. Yeah, the Nasty Boys I quite like. Harlem Heat are quite talented. I think the Steiners are better than both of them. Um, but, you know, that they would be the best team in the division. Um, but that, you know, that's the thing. That's, that's the real shame is that we didn't get these guys in or we haven't yet. I mean, they've, they've agreed a deal with WC, uh, with ECW and that's going to be fun to see how that develops. Um, Absolutely. but yeah, no, in, in terms of that, you know, this, this was peak Bischoff from the night in the sense that the rest of it was just Bischoff being self-indulgent. This was him talking bollocks and that was kind of, that was where he crossed the line probably in this match. But anyway. Uh, we start with the hip tops and then a body press over the top rope with Scott throwing Harsey into an attendant on the outside, which I thought was quite cool. Harsey back in the ring hits a nice drop kick to Scott, but Scott fires back with a snap suplex, then hits a tilt and whirl side slam for tagging in Rick. Ricks takes down Suzaki before Suzaki hits him with a German suplex. Suzaki comes off the top rope, but Rick catches him into a belly to belly suplex. Harsey hits a nice edge chops, but Rick seems less than impressed. He picks up and drives him chest first into the corner. Scott hits a belly-to-belly, but Suzaki breaks it up. Rick hits Harsey with a German suplex. Scott then locks in an STF on Harsey. Scott starts stamping on Harsey's chest and hits a double underhook powerbomb. Harsey finally tags in Suzaki, who unloads on both Steiners until Scott, I think, low blows him. Suzaki picks up on... Uh, picks up Rick and Hase comes off the top for a nice double team move. Hase then picks up Rick for a giant swing for a good eight or nine circuits. The moon seems to have affected Hase too, who's dizzy. Rick hits a belly-to-belly and Hase appears to land on his head. Rick and Suzaki brawl to the outside. Scott hits Hase with a stalling suplex that the camera misses and the Steiners win the match. Chris? Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed this match. It was um, it was quite slow-paced, but it was very high-impact. Um, generally speaking, it, it, was, it was pretty good. All four guys worked hard. Um, some things annoyed me, like you said, after Hase hit the... Uh, giant swing which was very impressive he, he stood around looking dizzy you just think well you could just tag out like that that's a way to solve that one well and is it is it the idea you're so dizzy you don't know where you are uh i guess but then he goes to continue the offense there's just sort of like a bit oh i see right yeah yeah no, okay, fair enough. 
rather like if you if you're a bit shaken up, then just tag out and move on. But yeah, and the other aspect of it that does annoy me is not it's not it's not to take anything away from the match, but the uh, the directing to miss the finish was pretty terrible. Um, they, like they cut away just as he set him up for the move, uh, just really really poor. <laughs> Yeah, to, 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 to miss a finish on a tape show is, is something else, really. This, this wasn't a particularly dynamic show in terms of directorially. This wasn't a show that, as we said, you, know, you had a show in front of 190,000 people and you barely showed them. You know, your, your cameras were fairly static in terms of this is what we're going to show. And yet, just as the moment the action spills to the outside and Scott sets up for the finish, they just missed it, which was you know, pretty unforgivable, I would think. Stuart, what do you think? There's one thing to miss a finish, but to miss a finish when that is the Steiner screwdriver is a whole other crime because that move is unlike anything else in wrestling. It looks incredible. It looks super dangerous. And in front of any other crowd, whenever Scott Steiner does that move, it gets that sort of gasp reaction from from whoever sees it. So, so to miss that is pretty unforgivable. Yeah, the match itself was okay. I mean, these two teams had the... Wrestling Observer Match of the Year in 1991, so you'd expect it to still still be pretty good. It's only a couple of year, years later, but again, it kind of functioned as as almost a, a, a dummy's guide to what these two teams can do. Unfortunately, what these two teams can do are pretty good. Yeah, no, this this was my favourite match on the show. That's that's not to undercut or to criticise anything the women did. I just, you know, one, I'm a massive fan of the Steiner brothers, and one thing I'm excited about, you know, hearing the fact they're going to be in ECW because they haven't massively featured anything we've done so far. They left the WWF, I think, at the very beginning of '94, and we only really got a few months to see what they were good at. And in terms of major matches, they didn't have many. Um, but yeah, like uh, uh, they're talking. I think they're talking. That well, they were talking about. I think tagging the Steiners with Taz. Um, which a fantastic idea given the amount of suplex potential, but given that we think Taz has broken his neck now, that's probably uh, not going to be workable for a while. But yeah, if we're going to talk about holding the Steiners in ECW against Benoit and Malenko, oh, oh yeah. I'm going to be uh, front and centre for that. But yeah, I really enjoyed this match. It was the kind of it was my kind of match in the sense that the pace was quick without being unbelievably quick. And I think that's probably where my enjoyment of the women's match fell down a little bit in the sense that it just it went a little too fast or a little too long to be believable. Um, but the moves are very hard hitting and you're always going to get that with the Steiner brothers. And Hase and Sasaki are both very good as well. It's just a really good match. I think it went about 11 or 12 minutes. And yeah, just to share about the finish, but my, my favourite match of the night, certainly. Uh, and we move on to the main event. It's Ric Flair against Antonio Inoki. Inoki attempts to fire at the crowd and does get some response. Mike Tanay points out that at the time it was filmed, Flair had been retired for the prior six months, so may have some ring rust. Flair does a hip toss. Inoki rolls through with the head scissors and then pops up and they square off. We get some chain wrestling into an arm submission by Inoki. Flair returns the favour. The pair pop up and square off again. Inoki unloads on Flair, who drops to the outside. Inoki is fired up. Flair attacks Inoki, and the action spills to the outside again. Flair drives his head into the ring post. Back in the ring, Flair works over Inoki's legs, including a locking in a variation of an SCF. He then drapes Inoki's leg over the bottom rope and drops down on it. Flair then locks in the figure four leg lock. Inoki eventually escapes and goes for a small package, then attempts a backslide for a two count. The pair exchange punches. Inoki knocks Flair down flare and attempts to get some response from the crowd who do somewhat 
Inoki fires Flair into the corner, who does the Flair flip to the outside. Flair goes to the top, but Inoki flows him across the ring. Bischoff then claims Flair has survived plane crashes, plural, which I think is a bit of an exaggeration. Flair then hits a body slam, then drops an elbow. Inoki recovers and hits a lovely cartwheel kick, then scrambles to the top rope to drop a knee. Inoki then picks up Flair, hits an Anziguri, God knows what Bischoff calls it, and that's enough for the win. Chris? Um, it was, yeah, it was just sort of, at this point in his career, it was a very standard Ric Flair match. It was decent, and it was the only match on the show where the crowd seemed remotely interested, although it only was a section, it was a vast improvement on, uh, on anything we'd seen before this. Uh, the pace felt a bit varied for my liking, it was very stop-start, but Inoki was, what, 53 at the time? Yeah, uh, well, it yes. still is, yeah. Um, and yes, Flair, yeah. Flair's uh, early 40s, I think. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, Inoki is, is very good for an athlete of that age, a uh, wrestler of that age. Uh, but, yeah, he is past his prime. And Flair is still capable, but he is getting on a bit in age now, too. So, yeah, I think that, that that's, a, that's an important piece of context, I think, to this match. Not that I think Inoki has aged much in the last three months. No, but, like... So any criticism I did have, like upon hearing his age, just that diminished immediately. It was, it was excellent for for that. And uh, my one big grievance again came with the commentary, where midway through the match, which obviously they, as you alluded to, they they were selling this pay per view on the back of this main event. Uh, the commentary put over Hogan for beating Ric Flair, and it's like, well, it's the one WW sorry WCW show that. I've done on this podcast that isn't just built around Hogan, and I know it's not necessarily their show, but even then, they still have to put him over in the main event. Like, still, still got to look after number one, Chris. Still got to look after number one, <laughs> even when you're over the other side of the world. Stuart? Yeah, this was pretty decent, considering, like you say, Inoki's 53, and Flair, yeah, hasn't been wrestling for six, six months. It was, as, as you said at the start of the show, it was a pretty standard Ric Flair match, but luckily... If you put Flair in there with someone who can work a standard Ric Flair match, it's normally pretty watchable. Yeah, I think also, you know, one, if the crowd are going to have heard of anyone on this card, it would have been these two. I don't, I don't particularly get the feeling they did. But I think more the point that Inoki just looks like a kind of star in Asia. You know, he, if, you, if you said to a North Korean, draw like a, a larger-than-life, you know, you know, fighter... They might have got someone younger, but they would have looked like Inoki. So I think that helped them draw to it as well. But he he tried with the crowd, and the crowd went with him a little bit. You know, as I say, let, let's not overdo this. This wasn't you know a big pop, but you know he was trying with the crowd. And I think the other thing as well is that Flair was very definitely playing a heel. Probably the only the only act that very definitely looked like he was being a heel. You could see it, there's sure, but Flair was the only one that was really going out of his way to do it and you know this, this this had more kind of out of ring action probably the other matches did as well but yeah i i think this is this is flair at 80 percent this is flair at 80 percent at this age but as i said earlier on you know in front of this audience it doesn't need to be any more than that you know you're you're not gonna the difference between a three-star match and a four-star match in front of this audience doesn't really make any difference. They're either going to enjoy it or they're not. They're either going to pop for it or they're not. They've not seen enough to the point where they know any better. So the fact that Flair, perhaps you might look at this objectively and go, this is Flair kind of going through the motions a little bit. This was Flair working a Ric Flair match, and it was fine. Um, and given both guys' ages, I think it was uh, 
It was perfectly acceptable. Um, Stuart, your, your overall thoughts on this show and a score rating? I think it's a difficult one to score because it doesn't fall in the context of a normal wrestling pay-per-view. Like we said earlier, it, it doesn't further any storylines, it doesn't advance any angles, it doesn't develop any characters. It's it's kind of almost a beginner's guide to pro wrestling. So, you know, I would say a, a four out of ten maybe in the sense of there are a couple of matches I quite like. The, the Steiner Brothers tag match and obviously the women's tag match were, were, were pretty good. But I, I find it difficult to give it an overall score, really. Chris? Yeah, I completely agree. It was a bigger uh, negative, like 190,000 um, on the second day, but uh, we didn't see or hear from them. I mean, uh, whether they just didn't care or just didn't understand, probably a bit of both. Um, there were some good matches on the show, but as Stuart said, it felt a lot of the card felt very sort of exhibition. And as a result, it is hard to give it a score. And I gave it the same as Stuart. I gave it four out of ten. Yeah, I, I was. I think if you could have dragged the ring out of Korea and put it into Japan or into the States and put on exactly the same action, I think this show would have been a notch or two better than it was. Uh, it was just, it was like watching a wrestling show in an empty room, which given that there were 200,000 people there, it was quite disappointing. But, you know, we'll, we, we have and we will come on to the reasons that why that is. Um, but yeah, the action was good and uh, I'll give it a four out of ten, having given it a five, but knocking a point off just for the awful commentary. Um, again, it, it, it's one thing just to be bad, uh, as at times Bishop was and he was trying, but the the self-indulgence and then just the, the digs at the Steiner brothers, which, you know, were, were, were purely for selfish just games you know it wasn't you know it, why why you're trying to knock the steiners down while you're watching them it's like you might want to just build them up you know what i mean like it's not it's not like they're in the wwf or anything like that it's not easy to be worried in in that regard um but yeah i i would give this show a, a four out of ten and we'll uh, move on now um, to, to uh, we'll come out of 20 years ago, Mo, because this article that came out a few months ago uh, in uh, in April 2015 um, is it, it, very pertinent to the um, the discussion we're going to have now about this show. Uh, in uh, April of 2015, Sports Illustrated SI.com released uh, a, a massively long write up about this whole mainly the tour less so the show um but it was one of those things where once you know i I saw the article a few months ago and once i kind of read it i kind of thought okay this is the kind of thing where we can do some context on this show in 20 years ago mo but given how in-depth this write-up was uh and given how revealing some of it was i think this was just the better way to do it uh chris i know you you haven't read you 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 haven't read most of this so so chip in where possible but i know Stuart has um and just as i say Search, just search on on Google for you know Sports Illustrated, you know WCW in Korea, and, and you'll find it. It's a very long read. Having having read through it and cut out chunks, it took me about twenty five minutes to get through start to finish. Um, but Stuart, just yeah, you know, I mean, just your, what were your overall thoughts on the article, and and we'll get to them. But what were the standout points? Um, I'd say the standout stuff is is what this insight provided in terms of what it's like to live in North Korea. I mean, if if you've ever watched a documentary, I think there's a BBC one from a couple of years ago where they send people in with filming equipment and uh, what people in this state live like is 
it's just completely alien to us in sort of the Western world in terms of how media is controlled and how how obedient. I, I don't mean that in a sort of demeaning sense. I think people are obedient in the sense of fear. Um, you, you know, how controlled everything is. The standout point of the whole article for me is Norton is on the phone to his wife because she thinks he's off on some tour partying and he's not spoken to her a few days and he's out with women, getting drunk, etc. So, so he rings his wife from the hotel phone, tells her, I mean, I think it's something fairly innocuous, like he says it's a shitty country. Immediately the phone conversation is cut and he's ushered downstairs to some room where he's basically told, you won't say that again. Yeah, the quote is, you don't understand what kind of a shithole we're in, was the, uh, was, yeah. was the line that um, Norton said down the phone, and obviously there are people recording him, and then as I, I, I picked out some of the quotes, and I'll read them verbatim because they're very interesting. Um, Norton continues, says, uh, they, they then take me out of my room and take me downstairs. We might have went out of the hotel, I'm not sure, it was underground. They They take me to this room and start telling me, you can't say that about North Korea. You're tapping the phones, I say. We're not tapping the phones. Listen, pal, I got into the argument, I got into an argument with my wife. He responded, we don't argue with our women here. Our women don't argue with us. Now I'm getting scared. These guys have got guns. Nobody knows where I'm at. And yeah, you know, that kind of thing where, and, and just this whole thing, you know, talking about, um, you know, just, just, you know, the, the, the plane flight in and just, you know, the, all the arrangements they had to get in and they got there and the first thing that happened was they took all their passports off them. And imagine that. Imagine going, oh, imagine going into North Korea as a group of, you know, uh, American, you know, I think the, the touring party were the guys working in Japan. I think Flair would have arrived separately. Um, but no, in fact, no, Flair was on the plane with Muhammad Ali. They got one plane from Japan to North Korea because that's, that's what happens. You know, North Korea don't, don't let people in very often and imagine touching down then within like an hour the first thing that happens is like yeah we need your passports off you like wow like that mm. that would have been like really scary and then there's there's a really interesting story from bischoff about um because they they were kind of cooped in this hotel one thing they said on the plane flight in and on just you know having been driven from the the airport to uh to the hotel was just how you know great it was and how kind of you know featureless the, the, the pyongyang was and also just the fact that you know and, and they were just cooped in the hotel and they were told don't go out obviously they were eventually um, but one morning bischoff got up to go out for a run it was about 5 a.m and so he said well it was still dark and i was out there in you know running clothes and a baseball cap on back to front and between his starting the run and finishing not only did the light come out but all of the a lot of north korean workers came out on their way to work and he just said it was like moses parting the red sea and he said like it's not he having was, three heads yeah, that was what yeah. he said. Like, that was how people were looking at him. And he kind of said, I was either under the impression that I looked so different that, you know, people were scared of me or they thought I was there to attack them. You know, that kind of thing. And Bischoff got back to his hotel and they're like, you did what? You went out for a run? Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. And all that as well. Um, but you know, just, I say, some, some fascinating quotes. Um, Sonny Ono, who was WCW's consultant on the tour, um, here's a quote from the article. Uh, when I told the Japanese embassy I was going there, they said no. There's a big issue in Japan about citizens being kidnapped by North, America, North Koreans. I guess I'm a little nutty. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. There was no clearance. Clearance. Quote, you understand we cannot guarantee your safety. Unquote. That was about the last thing they told us. Which, you know, you want to talk about scary things like that as well. Um, but yeah, also just, you know, 
coming on to some quotes about, um, sorry, I'm just reading a quote. Um, that's right. This is, here, here's, a, here's an interesting quote from Bischoff. Um, they're talking about the roads and, um, the fact that the roads are kind of, you know, eight lanes wide, four lanes where one way, four way lanes go and the other. And one thing that Bischoff observed was that there was hardly any traffic on the road, largely because people in North Korea couldn't afford cars or just didn't have access to them. And here's another quote from Bischoff. So I asked about these streets. My handler told me that the streets are designed to function as airport runways in the case of war. War. The streets weren't made for cars. They were made for fighter jets. I thought that's just crazy, but it was another in the series of crazy things. And then we, yeah, there's there's other quotes from uh, uh, Scott Norton on about um, Ric Flair being in the limo and they're they're, they're they're getting driven to the arena and um, that they're observing just the amount of people. And the limo driver says, "Look, nobody really wants to come. It's a forced attendance. If they don't show up, they get a bullet in the head." And I went, "All right then." That was Norton. And, um, yeah, Rick Steiner said, you know, the, the crowd didn't do anything. There was another quote about, um, the, the, the female wrestlers just being from completely from another planet. Um, just, you know, how, you know, how just North Korean, you know, life and just how it goes on. You know, women, as, as I said earlier, you know, women don't argue with us. You know, they don't question us. And you get to these four women who were larger than life, who were dressed in bright colours, all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, there's there's other things as well. Apparently, Bischoff took the idea to Hulk Hogan and said, do you want to go to Korea? You know, because they, they, they got in contact with Bischoff and, and that kind of thing. And, and Bischoff said it would have been, I think Hogan would have been more inclined to row a boat to Pluto, was uh, was Bischoff's <laughs> comment. Um, but, yeah, Flair's, Flair's involvement in this is quite fascinating as well. He was the kind of guy who just went, yeah, this is, what an interesting opportunity. But by the end, um, you know, one thing Dave Meltzer was quoted about in the article was, you know, one reasons why, you know, Flair isn't massively desperate to, to claim his, you know, his name on the most attended wrestling event ever. And, and one was the fact that, you know, it was a forced crowd, that they weren't there to see him. They were there because they had to be. And, you know, I, I, I joke about our mythical tag team, Stuart. I get the sense we could have got 190,000 people in that building that day just because it was what they what they were told to do, um, and that kind of thing. But there's a, a fascinating quote from Scott Norton the, uh, right at the end of the article about when they were returning from uh, North Korea, and this probably tells you just sums up how little they enjoyed this. He said, uh, it was pouring pouring with Wayne when we walked off the steps of the plane and Flair, in his $3,000 suit, got on his hands and knees, kissed the ground and said, I love Japan. Uh, it's a fascinatingly long read. Uh, Stuart, a- a- anything else stand out to you? That Those are the kind of things I, I-, I copied out of the article just to quote from, but any- anything else? Yeah, you really nailed all the key points I wanted to discuss. Like you say, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and I think off the back of reading this article was why I went and watched a documentary on, on North Korea, just to kind of see what it's like to live in a state like that. It, it, it's, it's scary stuff. I mean, one quite funny little story, Bob, I don't know if you heard this a couple of months ago when North Korea played Hungary in a football match. Yeah. Where Hungary won 5-1. But on North Korean news, it was reported as that they won ninety eight nil. It's just bizarre. It, 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 like you say, it's like it happened on Pluto. It's like it's from another planet. You cannot imagine what it's like living in a state. I mean, imagine being told, right, there's, there's this event that whether you want to go to it or not, you have to go to it. I, I just can't imagine anything like that. Yeah. No. I mean, I say it, it kind of. 
it, this is a really interesting show to do in the sense that you kind of have to look at it from both angles in that you can do the show and it's like we can talk about the show and, and the action involved, what there was of it. But when you contextualise all this, and there's so much stuff I could go into, but I won't just in terms of the food and, and you know, like I think um, Bischoff said that after he got caught you know, out and about for a run, they didn't leave the hotel again other than to, to go and do the the, uh, the shows themselves. And he said him and, him and Flair started just running stairs in the hotel because they had nothing better to do. Um, and all of that, and just so many different things about it. But you know, uh, the, the the idea that you know that they the, apparently they didn't get their passports back until right near the end as well, like just right until they're about to leave. And, and there was a great thing where I think Norton said we got back to the airport and the plane hadn't moved; it hadn't been used since. And it's like, whoa, okay, that's kind of less scary, I guess, more just indicative that the plane hadn't moved because there was no reason to move it because the the airport runway wasn't needed, or, you know, words to that effect. You know, this is just a, a country on another planet is probably the best way to describe it. But a fascinating historical thing, we haven't particularly touched on Muhammad Ali's involvement in all this. I mean, that was kind of part of it. He doesn't, yeah, he, he, he doesn't massively feature in part of the story. Certainly the, the sports interactive, uh, sorry, sports illustrated article is more focused on the wrestlers. There's, there's quotes from Norton, uh, from both the Steiner, from Bischoff, from Flair and people like that. Um, but yeah, Muhammad Ali is, is massively involved in all of this. And there's some very interesting positive stories as well, Chris, about, about Ali's, you know, on the plane ride and how, how he interacted with people like Road Warrior Hawk. And if there's anything from that massively long article that we can put in the positive section i think it was ali's involvement and also just hearing about despite you know i think it's um Hodg- is it parkinson's or hodgkinson's i can't remember exactly what he's got you know his, the, the disease he had um but hearing about how apparently despite his mobility problems like there were times when they were walking up to see a big north korean monument and he just took his jacket off and started running and it was like yeah it's just muscle memory but still i think that was probably one of the one of the only positive takeaways we could take from that entire article yeah, I think, is it Scorpio that talks about, like, it was quite a, a, a massive moment in his life, but quite surreal being sat on this plane with Muhammad Ali, and they sort of say that his charisma just wowed the group of wrestlers that that were sat interacting with him. Yeah, I, I think the Scorpio line is, I think he said his dad used to spar with him um, when he was, like, a, an amateur slash, you know, semi-pro boxer. Um, so I think that was why, in part, the Scorpio thing was good. But, yeah, I think if you're, if you're anyone, um, you can imagine it. And there's also, I can't remember the exact quote, I didn't pull it, but there was one thing where uh, Flair and, uh, and Ali went to an event in North Korea and um, that they're, they're going through the motions, being with the dignitaries, and apparently Ali goes to Flair and says what the hell's up with these guys? And Flair says, yeah, all right, let, let's not let's not say these things out loud or something like that. I, I should have grabbed that quote. Um, but yeah, that, that, I'd almost say like, if you had to watch the show or read the article, having listened to this podcast, I'd read the article because the show is kind of like just a, a wrestling in a sandbox. Um, you'll get annoyed by Eric Bischoff. You'll, you'll get an introduction to some Japanese wrestling, which is positive. But this article is, is fascinating in so many levels, just seeing some of these quotes. And, and yeah, as, as, and that one final thing that, that really came to mind was that they get right to the end and they're talking about the historical significance. They get some quotes from, 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 uh, from Dave Meltzer. And one of the things he said was, uh, that, you know, Inoki, Flair and Hogan being, you know, the three stars of their generation. Um, you know, Inoki wrestled Hogan a lot, Flair wrestled Hogan a lot, but this is the only meeting of Inoki and Flair, which is you know, mind-blowing when you think about it. Um, but that was interesting. And he was also talking about, you know, 
how the industry's evolved and how the WWE can kind of ignore this you know, attendance record. And there's, there's a great quote from Bischoff, uh, great in the sense that he is right, but he, he immediately manages to lose the moral high ground when he says, you know, how can they say that, you know, we didn't do that? I'm like, yeah, but Eric, you, you didn't. didn't, you didn't do that either. Like yeah. you, you, you were there. Ric Flair was in the main event. Fine. But this was not a WCW show. This featured one and a half WCW performers. Hawk, Hawk at the time it was recorded wasn't a WCW performer. Uh, really, he, he featured more from, from that time onwards um but yeah like bishop say you know well it happened it's like well yes it did but it's not it's not your record to claim just in the same way it's not wwe's place to ignore it um but yeah like a. Uh, like I wanted to do the show for a number of reasons. One, because it gave us an English language commentary on a, on a predominantly Japanese show, but just a, a fascinatingly significant um, show historically, and one that I think WWE is inclined to ignore. And the other thing I say now we're out of twenty years ago mode as well, given that we're about a month removed from the Beast in the East thing as well. That that was an interesting tie-in as well. Obviously, that was a that was a wholly um, WWE roster going to Japan uh, or whole WWE roster going to Japan rather than kind of a, a show but interesting thing just seeing uh, an Asian audience but as I say so significant and uh, 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 and do read that article um, I, I mean I think just finally as well that's potentially the reason it's not on the WWE network I mean they will own the rights to this show as this was a WCW staged pay-per-view but to have this on the network with this legit attendance record well it diminishes all theirs doesn't it so I can pres- only presume that's the reason it's not on there yeah no no I mean uh, like given given the context around it like can't they you know because because the fact as, as i say like if i'd have been in the main event it still would have had 190,000 people there and like give, given that like can't still can't wwe still acknowledge this while still claiming you know like this is a genuine attendance record versus this thing that happened in korea which isn't genuine even though it happened like can't they do that or is it just the case that they just rather not bother no they can't do it it's an ego thing isn't it yeah it, it, I, it that's all it boils down to uh, Chris, anything to add on this? I know, you, I know, you, you you did catch a little bit of the article. A, a, anything on what we've discussed? Well, yeah, I just it's it's just a like I don't know. After reading like parts of the article and hearing you both discuss it, it just it's just like puts a whole new light on the show. It's quite sad, really. Like the what and like if if uh, they're sort of bugging these these wrestlers' phones and things like that and. Uh, what like what must it be like to be a citizen? Like it must just be terrible. Like yeah. and uh, the 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 stuff with it not being on the network and things like that. It's just um maybe just because of the, the, the what you you have both been discussing in terms of it being like a forced crowd and uh, like quality of life and things like that. It's probably just a, like as much as a legitimate reason behind it in terms of it being just a bit iffy like they'd rather not draw attention to it yeah 190,000 people in the arena but as the limo driver put if they don't turn up they get a bullet in the head and it's like we don't really want that on our network it wasn't anything to do with us it was barely anything to do with WCW like it was but it wasn't a a WCW show um, from start to finish as you say so it's just easier to steer clear of it and it it wasn't a uh, 
what it will be remembered for is the fact that it was in Korea rather than sort of any stellar wrestling or anything like that. So it is quite easy to forget it. It didn't enhance any storylines. It is quite easy to put it to one side when you add in sort of the, I guess, political aspect to it. It, it, it And it just it overall is quite, quite sad, really. And quite, um, I, yeah, it's fairly uncomfortable, actually. Yeah, I mean, uh, Chris, I, I agree with everything you say. But do you not think that if the WWE have this, they because you're draw it's a bit like it's a much bigger example of, of the Bash at the Beach show last month. Bash at the Beach is a terrible show, but it's noteworthy because it's outside on a beach. And one thing WWE discussed that apparently is in the Observer this week that they're looking to do a show on the beach. And I remember putting it on Facebook, well, it can't be as bad as the one we reviewed last week. <laughs> um, but that was a noteworthy show because it was on a beach. Do you not think that if they've got this show, like that, that a lot, I think a lot of people want to see this. I remember I put on Twitter this week and said we're reviewing this show, and about three people went, where can I find it? And, and, and like, it's not there's anything dramatic in this two hours. It's, it, as I say, in a sandbox, it's a fairly uneventful two hours. But it's kind of, it's a historically significant show that, that for, for good or bad, for right or wrong, I think a lot of people would want to see just because it's like, it's a showing career in front of 190,000 people. And, and the, the wrestling part of all this, Chris, the only instance of Anoki and Flair. So, do, do you not think there, for for all the, for, despite all the things you said, do you not think there might be some justification for putting it on? Oh uh, yeah, I definitely understand your uh, like the sentiment behind everything you say as well. Uh, like the, the the biggest part I take away from that is is the only meeting between Anoki and Flair, and that alone is more than reason enough to have this say on the network. The, the other side of that though, like when you hear about this show, I know what. I expected going into it in front of the largest recorded crowd and it is like, I it probably, well, it's hard to imagine ever it being surpassed. Not like an attendance like that. Never. Ve- it will very, ne- very it, unlikely. It I don't think any, any stadium exists that could hold no. that many people outside yeah, of North Korea. I mean, it's, it's the largest sports stadium in the world. Um, yeah. and until they build one and, and given that they haven't, I don't think they ever will because I think one would have been built since. If if designers thought that having a stadium that could seat 150,000 people and then get another X number of thousand on the floor was a good idea, someone somewhere would have done it. I think the fact they haven't tells me it's not going to happen. In which case, yeah, I mean, I think there were some attempts by WCW to claim that not only claim the record for a show they weren't particularly involved in, but also claim both nights combined at like 340,000 people, as if 190 didn't sound impressive enough already. Um, but no, I, I agree with Stuart. I don't, th- th- this attendance record will, will, I foresee nothing that says to me this will ever be broken. One, because the stadiums don't exist, and two, because, and one thing we didn't really speak about, not that it really matters, I can't imagine you would have got a great view if you were in the top row of the uh, the Mayday Stadium um, either. I'm sure it's the same question on the network front. For, for, all, for all the negatives, is this something that people should be able to see? Oh, oh, absolutely. But, I mean, the WWE, as far as the network goes, and, and, and they've claimed that the historical stuff isn't drawing the viewers. They think we want to watch Swerved, and they think people want to watch Total Divas, which I do. That's a good point. They think people <laughs> want to watch Camp WWE and stuff like that. They are not interested in drawing wrestling fans that want to watch curiosities like this or old episodes of Superstars or old episodes of Saturday Night or the AWA footage they own or the world class footage they own, although admittedly there is a bit of that up there. 
they're, they're not interested in getting those things on there. They want Jerry Springer and Swerved and all these other gubbins. Maybe they're right. I, I, I don't have a, uh, I don't have a good answer to that, that, uh, that, that point. But yeah, no, you, you are right. That, that, that's exactly how they're thinking. They, they put a lot of old content up and, um, since then it's been a bit, you know, all over the place. One thing I, I would add is that, that with the hearing that it's a show in North Korea with that many spectators and things like that, it does strike a chord of curiosity as a wrestling fan that you want to check this show out. But ultimately, if you watch the two hour show, it doesn't really touch on any of it. You never really get a, the, a you, you never get to see what the, uh, what the crowd's like or anything along those lines. Uh, so uh, only the opening it. ceremony, which is admittedly isn't really yeah. the point, but only no. uh, they, they have like, the opening ceremony, which is in the light and they show all the crowd and all of that. And, and one of the things in, in the article they spoke about was just how orchestrated the crowd was. Like, they had these banners and like, I think, yeah, Ono said, them yeah. And, and Ono said, yeah, they've been rehearsing that for like six months. And like, whoa, okay, like that again, like the fascinating read. Like, like I urge, like, I think it's it's a relevant read if you don't like wrestling. It's a fascinating insight just into into a lot of other things. Um, but yeah, yeah, ma- massively important. I um, think, Gem- I, sorry, uh, generally, as as you say, if you are curious about it, watching the show will do very little to satisfy that, and reading the article will. So, yeah. as, as you say, if you're going to do one, it's definitely be, go the route of the article. Yes, I will try and put a link into the uh, into the podcast description for that uh, article on Sports Illustrated if I can. Uh, but yeah, Google Sports Illustrated WCW in Korea, you'll find it. As I say, like in many ways, he perhaps should have done the show the other way around. That was probably the, by far more significant than, than what we actually reviewed wrestling was. Um, one final thing we, we we well we don't necessarily have to discuss it, um, but it is timely given that it, it broke overnight. Um, and it's one thing that I said when we, we spoke about the death of, uh, of Mabel, aka Nelson Fraser Jr., when we spoke about the Ultimate Warrior, when we spoke about Dusty Rhodes, Dusty Rhodes, sorry. Um, it's, it's, it's wrestlers passing and unfortunately it's something we're going to face more and more in the future coming onto this show. Um, Stuart Raleigh Piper passed away overnight, age 61. Um, I think to the uneducated, while well, Piper's a name, Piper's the guy on the opposing side to Hulk Hogan in WrestleMania 1. I, I think he, he's far more significant than that. Oh, oh absolutely. I think it, it's one of those things that Piper himself had championed a lot over his latter career is WrestleMania 1. Did people turn up to see Hulk Hogan or did people turn up to see Hulk Hogan batter Roddy Piper? And and I think there's probably a grain of truth in what Piper's saying. I mean, it, it it's kind of almost, and I don't want to use the term ironic, but there's a certain symmetry, I guess, in a way that six weeks ago, we kind of lost the quintessential baby face in Dusty Rhodes. And then, you know, less than two months later, we're losing potentially the best heel of all time in Roddy Piper. Yeah, um, no, you're, you're completely right. I mean, Chris, um, you know, you're, you're a similar age to me, and my exposure to Piper is, isn't a great deal. Um, but, but talk about kind of what, 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 what your experience as a Piper and, and, and how significant he was. Yeah, I mean, like you say, uh, me, uh, how much I've seen of him is very minimal, but I, like, through, uh, tributes of other wrestlers and just sort of, uh, from a nostalgic point of view, he was one of those who could, talk you into the building again much like uh much like dusty who yeah as you say we lost last month i mean it, it, in terms of his impact on the mic um like i know he had an influence on a lot of performers we've seen over the years and uh it like 
from uh, how greatly respected he is, he's one considered one of the greats of all time, and uh, everything I've seen suggests that that's perfectly apt. Yeah, I, I think uh, is Pomp a genuinely great talker, like a genuine like top X talker. Uh, have a big, you want to make that pull? He's always in that discussion. I mean, Stuart as a, a as a career, it's kind of interesting in the sense that. He was massively significant, but it's not like he hung around. Or my perception, it's not like the Hulkamania years, Roddy Piper doesn't keep popping up, you know, in the way that, say, Randy Savage does. And then you kind of get to the 90s, and, you know, and, and he had other interests in terms of acting and things like that. Um, but sure, I mean, like, I may be wrong on this, so, so, so please kind of elaborate and correct me if I'm wrong, but, his career, as as significant and as great as he was, it was really all about those early WrestleMania years. Well, well, I, th- I think the majority of his full time career exists pre WrestleMania. Yeah, uh, and he, and you're absolutely right. He he's around WrestleMania one to three. He has the retirement match with Adrian Adonis. He goes off to do films and he pops back up every now and again. I think he's back in ninety, sticks around to ninety two, comes back in ninety four, back again in ninety six, and then has the stint in WCW uh, late ninety six. Yeah. Um. But. Yeah, yeah. So for a lot of people, the majority of Rowdy Roddy Piper's full time career isn't isn't visible because that's as we discussed with, you know, just just a second ago with the network stuff. They own the rights to a lot of that kind of stuff, but they don't necessarily feature it in in a way that's prominent. They're happy to show you WrestleMania and they're happy to show you, say, you know, Royal Rumbles or Survivor Series or or WrestleMania Eight. That's a big Roddy Piper thing, but but they're never gonna show you a lot of sort of Portland footage or a lot of LA footage or, you know, really, really early AWA footage of Rowdy Roddy Piper. It's, it, it's just not in their, in their wheelhouse or their interests really, which, which is a shame because I, I think Wade Keller said in, in something he wrote this morning that the best Roddy Piper actually was pre WWF Roddy Piper. And, and, and interestingly enough, you know, he was never hired in the WWF to be a wrestler. He was brought in to be a manager, but he was so good at talking and people hated him so much that eventually they, they had to put him in the ring and, 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 and because people wanted to see that, which I think is an interesting note. Um, from a personal perspective, Roddy Piper was on the first wrestling event that I ever watched, which was WrestleMania 8 as a 10 year old that was when we first got sky and and there's that great match if if either of you have seen it with with roddy piper and bret hart so i, I think he, he'll always have a spot in my memory because of that yeah i mean you know again not, not, not i don't want to kind of dive out this this discussion too much but it, it everything kind of we we look at is not running against the grain of the WWE narrative, but it's always running alongside the fact that WWE's own version of history likes to tell its own very secluded story. And and one of the shames is that in the aftermath of everything that's gone on with Hulk Hogan the last few weeks, uh, sorry, in the last kind of week and a half, really, if you think about it, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the WWE deal with that in the in the coming weeks. And that generally, you know, we saw it with Warrior, we saw it with Dusty. Generally, they will put out a documentary about, you know, if a big name passes away, you know, with, with those two examples since the network started. They've gone out of their way to quickly put together a documentary that summarizes their, their life and their career. How do the WWE tell a story about Roddy Piper, either on Raw in a quick video? video package memorial or in a hour-long network special 
in the light of what's happened with Hulk Hogan. So I, I kind of, they can't. Yeah, well, exactly. But, but I, I kind of, I don't want, it's going to be difficult in the sense that, you know, what do they do? Like they, they, they can't mention Hogan for, for a lot of reasons that we discussed that on, on, um, on the WCW show. I think it was one. Chris, were you in that discussion last week? Was that right? Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah. Um, yeah, we discussed that last week and that, you know, for, for, for what, whatever people might think, they are absolutely in the right to, at least in the short term, disassociate themselves in as many ways they can with Hulk Hogan. Now we've got the point that, okay, Roddy Piper's passed away. The question is, is how do you tell, how do you give Roddy Piper his fair send off in the immediate aftermath of his passing in that light? And they've got some, you know, I, I don't want to trivialise or make a political situation out of the passing of a wrestling legend, but they've got some difficult questions right now. Um, and, and but um, yeah, you know, as I say, my, my experience of Piper isn't particularly significant. Um, I haven't seen a lot of his work. I, you know, I haven't I haven't watched a lot of wrestling pre when this timeline started and, and Piper's only real appearance was uh, was that WrestleMania and then the King of the Ring main event and that certainly wasn't oh. that certainly yeah Stuart uh, please 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 agree and confirm the fact that that certainly wasn't a fair representation of Roddy Piper N- not in the slightest but I mean the, the thing about Roddy Piper was he wasn't necessarily a great in-ring guy. I mean, there are some very good matches with Rowdy Roddy Piper in, but his real strength lay on the microphone. And that will wrap up, as I say, this month's show. We're actually going to put, I'm going to put this out tonight, just because it doesn't really make sense leaving it a month. Um, so yeah, this will appear in, in, in the podcast list first, but yeah, it really is a volume four. Um, but anyway, to thank the, firstly, uh, Chris White, Chris. Cheers for having me, Bob. Uh, Chris, you are on Twitter. I am at uh, Chris White fourteen. Excellent, and uh, as always, Stuart Brooks. Stuart, thank you very much, Bob. It's been a pleasure. Uh, talk, talk me through your your uh, your new generation project podcast and where people can listen to that. Yes, as you say, New Generation Project Podcast. So we cover kind of a similar era to to what you've done. We're about a year and a month, I think, ahead of where you're at at the minute. We're just about to get into October 1996, so going into quite exciting times. Having suffered through everything you're suffering through now. Oh, yeah. Dungeon of Doom and all. Um, So, yeah, Facebook, facebook.com slash New Generation Project Podcast. Twitter at New Gen Podcast. iTunes, SoundCloud, all, all those sorts of places you can listen to us. Yeah, I'm, um, ha, you know, it's, cause that, that, we want to talk about WWE writing their own version of history. Not that they particularly are incentivized to do this, but the WWE version of history says WCW 95 was all about Nitro, and, and, and in a way because it was the most significant event. But Nitro begins in September, and, you know, history never talks about WCW pre-Nitro in 95 because nothing happens. Um, but yeah, nothing happens, and, and, I, and I'm living that right now. Um, and so yeah, like the as much as I love this project, this is becoming quite difficult. And I'm hoping that there is a. Fortunately, uh, we're the res where I can generally tell you there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It just isn't getting here that quickly. Um, <laughs> I, I think, and Stuart, I mean, you, uh, have we bottomed out in both scenarios? I mean, you can you can answer the WWF question far better than WCW. But did, did we did we floor with King of the Ring and, and with Bash at the Beach? Does it get any worse? Um, tough, tough question. I mean, King of the Ring is bottom of the barrel WWF pay per view in terms of booking that makes you outright just angry. 
But I would say, I mean, you've got In Your House 4 coming up, I think, this month or next month. Or the month after, what have uh, Would it be, oh. well, we've got SummerSlam, then we've got In Your House 3, uh, it'll be October. So, October. Uh, that is a show that is just absolutely dull as dishwater. In some ways worse than King of the Ring. As far as WCW goes, unfortunately, bad news is you've got a bit of a longer struggle with that because right up until the NWO kind of form, you've got a very sort of self-indulgent... And, and if you think Hulkamania in 94 and early 95 has been self-indulgent, it's about to get a lot worse. So you've got that to suffer through, unfortunately. Uncensored Wonderful. 96, which is February, I would say, is the absolute bottom of the barrel for WCW. Yeah, because I mean, Chris mentioned earlier about, you know... Me, me getting a question on Twitter asking what what's what's the worst show? Uh, what's the so someone asked me a slightly different question. I said what's the best show you covered in '95? And I, I thought about it for a couple of minutes and I went, it and shoot, you were on the show as well. It generally probably is WCW uncensored, just because <laughs> it's 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 at least watchable. Like so much of this stuff is just like. How bad can it be? I, the only saving grace about WCW is that Nitro is coming soon. And, and, yeah. and if, no, if nothing else, while well, that does feature in quite good wrestling quite a lot of the time, that's also quite historically significant. And, I, and, and, and much like, much why I'd rather review King of the Ring than say Bash at the Beach 95 is that at least King of the Ring is this historically significant from its bad. Nobody remembers Bash at the Beach, but that's an awful show. It's, it's right yeah, down yeah. there with, you know, yep. It, it, like, if any, like, in ring wise, it's probably comparable with King of the Ring. It's just booked better. That's probably it. Um, and then we've got Battle Bowl, which, you know, I, I always come back to as my, my measuring stick. Anyway, uh, we could go on longer, but I, I better wrap this up. Um, yes, I, I, I am Bob Bamba. You can find me on Twitter at Bobby Bamba. Uh, Wrestling20YRS.com. Uh, it's basically everything's there. Links to Facebook, to Twitter, to iTunes, to RSS feed and all of that. Uh, yes, if you're on iTunes, all of that gives a, gives a rating and a review. Hit subscribe and all of that. Uh, and we'll be back at the end of the month. Uh, we've got SummerSlam to look at. We've got the Clash of Champions to look at. Uh, and also, as we're out of 20 years ago mode, uh, I have found footage of it. We are going to be looking at the uh, Terry Funk, Cactus Jack, Exploding Barbed Wire Deathmatch. Um, uh, which is um, yeah that that'll be strapped onto the ECW show. We're not going to have five parts, um, but yeah, so we'll do that then as well. Uh, but I've got a very busy month this month, um, but hopefully we should be able to plough through things, all the things we could. But anyway, to, to Stuart, to Chris, I'd be Bob Bamba. This has been Volume Four slash you know, Nought of uh, the August 1995 edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>